Now, Father, as we once again open this book, we do so with a view toward what else is going to happen this week. With Thanksgiving coming on Thursday, Father, I pray that you would fill us with the glory of the knowledge of Christ so that regardless of what whatever else happens this week, that we will have abundant reason to give you thanks. Not because we are getting anything new, but because perhaps our minds will be refreshed on what we already have in Christ. And we will see that for what it is, glorious beyond description. And so we give you thanks and praise and ask you now, send your spirit, O Father, to open our eyes and give us a heart to receive what the Spirit says to his church through this text this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Changing gears just a little bit this morning because it's Thanksgiving week. And I thought rather than do this next week, um, we would do it now to prepare our hearts for Thanksgiving. Besides that, next week's uh, message and the ones after that are pretty controversial and I didn't want to do that leading up to Thanksgiving. And so let's stand together and look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The focus here is on Christ, right? And that's the way it should be every Sunday morning, every, every day of our lives. But this especially so, Hebrews 1, verse 1, long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spake, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become, a more supu- as, become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You can be seated. Now, I will confess to you that what I'm going to share with you this morning is actually the compression of five different messages into one. And so I've been slashing and burning for the last few days to hone this in. And sometimes when we take that much material and we compress it into something much shorter. It can also be that much more powerful, and I pray it will be. This is Thanksgiving week, and I chose the book of Hebrews to help us think about Thanksgiving, not because Thanksgiving is spoken of a lot. In fact, we could only find one reference to Thanksgiving. It wasn't even Thanksgiving. It was gratitude, and we'll see that here at the end. Nevertheless, the comparison between the Christians living in the day that this author, whoever he is, wrote these words to the Hebrews is compellingly similar 
to the men and women who love Christ and sacrificed for him and left their home in search of a better country, namely the pilgrims. So part of the reason I'm sharing this with you this morning is because I want us to extract some things from this text, and part of it is, since it's Thanksgiving, I, I suspect there are many young people who don't really even know the true Thanksgiving story, and I'm not going to tell you the whole thing. I had to burn most of that, too. <laughs> but uh, let me tell you a little bit about that, that just kind of give you a flavor, and then encourage you to find some book that will amplify this and, and tell you the full story of what these precious saints of God endured in order that they could be in a place where they would have the freedom to worship Christ as the Word of God compelled them to do. In the early 1700s, sorry, 17th century, this would be the 1600s in England, the long reign of Protestant Queen Elizabeth came to an end. In her place, James I who was the son of Bloody Mary, you can tell where this is going, took the throne and began ruling England with a rod of iron. Unlike Mary, he was Protestant. She was Catholic, for expedience sake. The Church of England was firmly in control of all religious affairs and was absolutely intolerant of any expression of faith that did not conform to the 39 articles or the Book of Common Prayer pretty much dictated how you did everything in church. When these articles in this book was reinstated as a form of worship, from that point on, the faithful believers in England were hounded, bullied, thrown into prison on trumped-up charges, driven underground. They met in private homes. It sounds very much like what Paul describes at the end of the book of Hebrews. They met in private homes. They developed a complex system of moving from place to place so as not to be detected. Eventually, a group of them were discovered in the small town of Scrooby. They were having an unauthorized worship service. They were arrested for holding a formal worship service without the permission of the official church. Men and women and children were all thrown in jail as criminals. Men, women, and children. It didn't take long before these precious saints realized they had, to, they had come to a crossroad. They could either turn their backs on Christ for the sake of peace, or they could find a new place to call home, a better country, where they could serve and worship Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures. Well, you know the story. After much agonizing and discussion and prayer, they concluded that their only recourse was to leave England. And so they gathered their wives and their children and whatever few possessions they could carry, and they moved to Holland. Do not think for a moment that that was easy for them. It wasn't. It was like crossing the border from Mexico into America. They didn't know the language. They were immigrants. They left nearly everything behind to escape. They arrived in Holland as poor foreign immigrants. They didn't know the language. They had no influence on society, which they did back at home. And so all they qualified for was the most menial labor, the hardest of the hard work. They all had to work terribly hard just to make ends meet, and they did so for 12 years 
Eventually, however, it became clear to them that they could not stay where they were. Life was so hard, they were aging prematurely, and their children were beginning to forget the language that their parents spoke. They, they were in Holland, and they were losing the traditions and the values of their homeland. They simply could not stay in Holland, but nor could they return to England. They had heard of an English colony in Virginia planted in 1607 and began thinking that perhaps they might move to America. And then under the influence of Pastor John Robinson, a small group of them decided to take the risk. After selling almost everything they had left, this courageous band of men and women and children purchased a small ship, and it was called, not the Mayflower, but the, do you remember? The Speedwell. It was poorly named. (laughs) It didn't speed well, it sank well, and it didn't take long at sea before they realized they had a a boat full of holes and they had to return back to port. Uh, In fact, that happened twice. And they finally gave up on that. And then they found out that there was another ship called the Mayflower, and after a discouraging sequence of, of setbacks that reduced their number even further, what was left of them, 102 pilgrims crammed into a space equal to a modern-day volleyball court or something that you folks who have been around here for a long time know. Imagine squeezing 102 people into our old fellowship hall and setting sail in that space. That was suffering, but it was only the beginning. Soon after setting sail, they were caught in a storm at sea that lasted 66 days. At last, however, on November 9th, 1620, they heard the cry, land had been sighted, and they came aground at Cape Cod. But this was a harsh land, and they landed at the end of the fall. It was Rapidly becoming winter, there were no friends to welcome them, no inns to entertain or refresh their weather-beaten bodies, no houses or much less towns to greet them. Everywhere they looked, there was only barren wilderness and getting colder by the hour. And soon they launched a small boat in search of a place to settle. And soon they were attacked by Indians. After that, as they began to build the first houses, a general sickness broke out, and it went through all of the camp. Scurvy was common, and in the awful conditions, a simple cold was likely to result in consumption or pneumonia. At this point, the pilgrims started dying. There were six dead in December, eight in January. In February, they were dying at the rate of two per day, sometimes three per day. By the end of the winter, they had lost a total of 47 of the 102, almost half the original company. 13, listen to this, ladies, 13 out of the 18 wives died. Could their desire to worship Jesus Christ in freedom really be that strong? Would they persevere or would they turn back? Well, eventually the winter snows gave way to the beautiful New England spring. God sent to these desperate saints two Indians, Samoset and Squanto. 
These two Indians taught them how to plant and hunt and live in the wild. On the summer, in the summer of 1621, it was a beautiful time of harvesting and building and amazingly giving thanks to the Lord who had provided them a place where they could worship Christ in freedom according to the scriptures. In the fall, Governor Bradford declared a day of public thanksgiving to be held in October. And the reigning Indian chief, Massasoit, came to this celebration with 90 of his Indians. It was a little bit scary when they arrived. But they brought food. They brought deer and wild turkey and many other things. And they joined in a three-day-long celebration of God's goodness, even after all of that suffering. I tell you this story partly because this is our week of celebration of this very event And too many of us Americans don't even know what it is or how it came to be or why we should care. Thanksgiving is something that should be marked every year, but it should be a mark on our lives every day. We know from Romans 1 that one of the marks of an unbeliever is that they fail to give thanks. But for us who are in Christ, what's more natural than to give thanks to God for all that he has done. More than that, I tell this story as an example of faithful men and women who, like Moses in Hebrews 11, considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And he didn't even know Christ. These were men and women who treasured Christ more than comfort, more than freedom, more than possessions, more than life itself. And so my question is, what is it about Christ that makes him worthy of this kind of thankful suffering and joy? Like the Jewish brethren that the author of Hebrews was writing to, the pilgrims represented a persecuted church that had daily to decide which they loved more, Christ or the world. And so as we revisit this story year after year, I can't help but ask, what was it that motivated these people to make such a sacrifice? Was it not the same thing that motivated the merchant in Jesus' story to sell everything he had to buy the treasure in the field? Was it not the same thing that motivated the man who found who went looking for the pearl of great price, and when he found it, he sold how much? Everything he had. Why would a merchant, a businessman, sell everything he had? Under what scenario would that make sense? If the thing that you found is worth more than everything you have, you will gladly sell everything you have. What fueled their undaunted motivation was their love for the excellencies of Christ. And that's what the author of Hebrews expects will motivate his Jewish believers to hold fast, to draw near, and to be faithful to the one who is worthy of their allegiance, though it cost them their lives. These Hebrew saints were boldly committed to Christ, just as the English pilgrims later would be. But somewhere along the way, these Jewish believers lost a vision of the excellencies of Christ. And I believe that's why the author found himself 
exhorting them in chapter 12, verse 2, to fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. That's where their confidence would come from. That would be the source of their hope and their joy. That would be the motivation for thanksgiving. But they had lost the sight of his glory. They had lost sight of his worth. They needed to believe that Christ really is what God claimed that he is. They lost their passion for him. What they needed was to be reminded of the awesome greatness and glory of Jesus Christ. And so the author of Hebrews, whoever it was, we don't know, he sits down to write and he's thinking, okay, I know what the problem is. How do I start addressing it? I know that some of them are tempted to turn back because of the suffering, because of the difficulty. And they shouldn't be turning back. They should be worshiping and giving thanks. So how should I begin? And when you ask that question, it makes amazing sense that he would start the way he did. Now, we've already read it. Let me read it again. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed, the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And there's more about him being more excellent than the angels, but I know the clock upbraids me already. (laughs) What is it that makes Jesus Christ so excellent, so glorious, so worthy of our suffering? In these first four verses, the author mentions several things, and here they are. Number one, he, Jesus, is the heir of all things. He is the heir of all things. Now, what does it mean when he says that Jesus is the heir of all things? Well, the word heir here is derived from a term that means lot. Lot. It's a reference to a situation in which lots are drawn or lots are cast to divide up property and select a winner. The one who drew the lot would be the heir. And the word came to be used of dividing property that a father left For his children, when he died, each one of them got a lot. Now, this is important because in the Jewish family, there was a very precise way to divide up the father's property. If there were more than one son, then the eldest would receive a double portion, and all of the other sons would divide up the rest among themselves. However, if there was only one son then the entire inheritance was his. It all belonged to him. And as the sole heir, he would inherit everything, everything, everything that the father owned. You see, if Jesus Christ is God's only begotten son, then he, in fact, is the sole heir of everything that belongs to the Father. Everything that belongs to the Father now belongs to Christ. He owns it all. Think about it. Think about what there is. You say, what there is where? No, you pick. 
(laughs) What is there? Whatever comes to mind, that's the Son's. It belongs to Christ. Whether it be in the world of the microcosmic or the supercosmic, wherever it is, whether it's relational, whether it's material, whether it's spiritual, all things now belong to him. He's the sole heir. Everything that belongs to the Father belongs to Christ. And someday, in the future, all of the precious saints of God will stand before the throne and watch with wonder as Jesus takes full possession of all of his inheritance. We see this, by the way, in Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And just briefly, would you turn to the right here and look at Revelation chapter 5? And I want to read for you a little bit of what this is going to look like, because John, the apostle, saw it as a revelation from God. And here is what John saw. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. He, said, he writes this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written. This is, this is the father sitting on his throne, and he has a scroll in his hand. And on the back, uh, let's see, uh, um, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or in earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep. Now, why would John begin to weep? Well, let me tell you why. Jesus made all of these promises about the future. I go to prepare a place for you and all of that stuff. All of that was wrapped up in this seal. It was the will. It was the title deed of all of God's kingdom. And yet here we are. John is looking into the future. Nobody is worthy to open it. Why in the world did we suffer if none of this is going to come true? You get it? And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. What's he saying? Here's Jesus, the lion, the king of Judah. He is worthy to open the seals. This book, as I said, is the title deed or the will which the Father has prepared for the Son. And in it he gives to the Son the church and everything in heaven and in earth. Look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. I mean, and it continues. Who are those people? 
not just the Jews. He says, people from every nation. You know who that is? (laughs) It's us. For the most part, the reason that you are here, in fact, for all of us, the reason that you're here is because you heard the gospel proclaimed in your nation. Praise God. Jesus is the Father's sole heir. Everything belongs to him, but there's more. Paul explains in Romans 8, 16, and 17, we don't have time to go there, that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are what? Children of God and heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. So everything that the Son receives from the Father, we receive from the Father. Here's the kind of promise the Hebrews needed to be reminded of. When Jesus returns, He's coming to take possession of all that belongs to him. And because we are in Christ, we are fellow heirs with him. And all that is given, all of that that is given to the Son is given to us as well. Beloved, do you remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? And I had to, I had to cross out a bunch of other scriptures. But here's just one that you're so very familiar with. Blessed are the meek, for they shall, what? inherit the earth. The earth. You say, why the earth? Well, it's one of those things that is, and it belongs to Jesus. And one day it'll belong to you. Beloved, behold the antidote to materialism and anxiety. Because we are in Christ, and he is the heir of all things, We don't have to be enslaved to a desire for more stuff. Life is not found in the things that we possess. What we have coming to us is beyond anything that we can ask for or imagine. So we can be thankful. We can be thankful. No matter what our circumstances, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're sick or well, because Jesus is the heir of all things. And so all of our suffering in this life, no matter where it comes from, should point us to Christ and make us fly to Christ. He is the heir of all things. No wonder Paul could say, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Why is dying gain? Because we belong to the heir of all things. Secondly, he is the creator of all things. Look at verse two, back in Hebrews one. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed as heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Now this is perfectly consistent with other texts in the New Testament. For example, Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, whether visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. By him and for him. Or your translation may say, through him and for him. 
And John 1.1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, that's Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, were, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, that's a really important statement because a lot of people will say, at some point, the second person of the Trinity came into being. And that's impossible because here he's saying, anything that has come into being Jesus brought into being. He didn't bring himself into being. And so when the author of Hebrews reveals that Jesus created the world, he was only repeating what God had already revealed elsewhere. By the way, the usual word for world here is cosmos, but that's not what he's using here. The word ionos is rather used, and it typically is translated ages, because it doesn't refer to material things. The author's not speaking of the material world, but of time and space and energy and matter, that which is invisible. Jesus didn't just create the earth and everything that makes it work well, the solar system, the planet, gravity, all of the natural laws are also the product of his divine mind and came from his creative hand. All of it. And beloved, whenever we consider this truth, it should make us gasp at the glory. It should make us say with David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth when I consider the heavens, the moon. Did you consider the moon last week? The super moon? Did you take one minute to look at it and say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Your son created that, and everybody's looking at it. And most people are saying, it's the moon, <laughs> so what? But we look at the moon and we say, are you kidding? It is the one extraplanetary thing that we can really see well from standing in my backyard. Jesus created that. Glory to his name. And not only did he create it as a, as a big marble in the sky, but he put it in an orbit that is so complex and its, its effect on our planet is, is so complex and perfect. They know, for example, the exact day when the moon will be a supermoon like that again. And they can tell you the hour that you are most likely to see it in its full glory. Why? Because our God is a God of order and he created everything to work perfectly. You want something to be thankful for this week? Just walk out into your backyard tonight and look up at the moon and the stars or find a tree ablaze with color because of the turning of the seasons or point, to, point your children to the majestic skyline just as the sun is about to set. And so often when we see it, we'll, we'll remind our children, isn't God a fantastic, awesome artist? Nobody can paint that. And besides it, it keeps changing, keeps changing. I mean, every second you see it, how does he do that? I know, there's scientific reasons, but, but consider this. 
God not only created it with all of that color, but he gave you eyes to see it for a reason. So that you would glory in the excellencies of Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ created it all by his unfathomable creative power. And so, beloved, consider it deeply and thank him for giving you eyes to see and ears to hear and a mind to grasp something of the wonder that transcends the world. I say ears to hear because there's so much to hear as well. And we miss it because we're not thinking as we ought. When you hear a baby crying, some of you are drawn to it for motherly reasons. Some of you are, are pushed away from it for fatherly reasons. <laughs> Maybe. But it is the glory of God on display. The baby is communicating to you. We're out working in the backyard. We live on a creek now. And, and the mallards, I call them the mallard family, they multiplied this year compared to last. And when they get quacking, I start laughing. I just think it's the funniest thing. And there they are. And when you look down on them, you know, I can do hardly anything I do in my backyard scares those birds. They just look at me and quack. And they're gorgeous. The male mallard is gorgeous. Last night there were 13 of them. And right in the middle, I don't know why they do this, but there was a, a blue heron standing right in the middle of it. And all the ducks were kind of swimming around it. And I'm thinking, that is glorious. That is majestic. I mean, trying, if you were to try to get anything to fly, and yet God speaks. And life, beautiful life, quacking life appears. Why should you be thankful this Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving? Because Jesus is the heir of all things and he is the creator of all things. Number three, he is the radiance of God's glory. And what does it mean that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory? Well, in order to find out, we need to start by looking at the word radiance when you look up this word in the Greek linguistic tools, you discover that radiance usually refers to light. And it's not just, it's not static light. I'm not even sure that's possible. But rather light that is traveling away from its source. It is radiance. It is moving. As in the radiance of the sun. Some versions of, of the scriptures use the word brightness. In that case, God the Father is the Son at the center, and Jesus Christ is the brightness, the radiance. Or as John Owen put it, he is the brightest beam. And so Jesus Christ is the radiance or brightness of God's glory. But what does that mean? Well, to the Jewish reader, this would have been intuitive, but for us Gentiles who didn't grow up under the Old Testament canopy of covenants, it's not so obvious. So, we have to dig a little. We need to go back to the Old Testament and see if we can find the idea of brightness associated with the glory of God. And indeed, the Old Testament is peppered with this concept from first to last. There's far too much material here. I would, I would just commend to you in terms of a study, look up brightness, look up glory. You've got computer technology. But let me hit you with a few things. Genesis 15, when Abraham... God is about to make the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15. Remember he told Abraham, slaughter the animals, divide them up. 
normally, if you're going to make covenant, cut covenant is the way they would say it. We would cut covenant because things have to die. And you grab hand with the person you're making covenant with. You walk through the, the pieces as if to say, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I should ever break this covenant. Get it? And so God said, as I'm entering covenant with you, but before God walks through these, the two rows of pieces, he puts Abraham to sleep, which is an incredible study all to itself. God alone walks through and makes the covenant. God's covenant to, not with Abraham, but to Abraham. The really important thing for our study, however, is the fact of the way God appeared. And, and whoever was with Abraham and was awake and saw it, saw him as a, like a smoking pot, fiery blaze. And so here at the beginning, we have this light, this fire. Exodus chapter 3, we have Moses, and he's taking care of his father's sheep. He goes up on the mountain, and there's this this strange phenomenon. It's this bush. And what's going on with the bush? It's ablaze, but it's not being consumed. What is it? It is the glory of God. Exodus 24, God rescues Israel out of Egypt, and he he appears and defends Israel. He appears to Israel and defends Israel as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They could travel at night because this fire would ride over their heads and light the way. It was the glory of God. It was the Shekinah of God. And then fast forward to Second Chronicles where Solomon builds a temple for the Lord and as they're standing in front of the temple praising God and, and, uh, and singing to him, the musicians were playing, the choir was singing, the priests could not stand and minister there, the text says, because the glory of God came and filled the temple. It was this blazing light This is why the temple was at the heart and soul of the nation of Israel. It was everything to them because it was the place of God's providence, his presence and his providence. Uh, That's why David said in Psalm 26, regarding to the tabernacle, the predecessor to the temple, he says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells where your glory dwells. And then in Luke 2, in the New Testament, when Luke talks about the night that the angels appeared to the shepherds out in, uh, out in the fields by night, it says when they stood there, the glory of the Lord shone round about them. What is that? It is a strange and, and uncommon light. It just appears around them. The blazing fire of God burst into the sky, accompanied by a multitude of the heavenly angels saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. And he's not pleased with everyone. The bumper sticker doesn't put that on there. With men whom he is pleased. Luke 9, 29 through 32, in the transfiguration, while Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed. It was as if God tore back the veil of his flesh. And what did they see? Light. His clothing, they said, was like lightning. And in John 1, John 2, who happened to be there that night when Jesus was transformed before them, he later wrote these words. 
The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten, the only begotten, full of grace and truth. And so you see, beloved, the glory of the Lord was, here it is, the glory of the Lord was the visible presence of God. Now I ask you, who is Jesus? He is the visible presence of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He came to reveal God the Father. You see, Jesus is not just a prophet or some great rabbi, no. He is the manifest presence of God on earth. Before his crucifixion, Jesus said this in John 17, 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Listen to this. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. And then in verse 24, he says this, Father, I desire that they, that is his followers, that would include us, I desire also that they whom you have given to me be with me where I am, that is, in in the Father's presence, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me from before the creation of the world. Jesus isn't just the glory of God. He is the eternal glory of God. He has always been, before he was named Jesus, he was the eternal glory of God. But those who love the Lord Jesus have nothing to fear in this life. That's not true of the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, the glory of God is something to be feared. Think Ananias. Think um, Ananias and Sapphira. Think of others like Uzzah and others who were struck down by God. The author of Hebrews himself says, Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire, but not for his children. He is their glorious and loving father. In fact, Paul says it even better in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Now, how could God call light out of non-light? Answer, because he is light. He is the light. He is the very source. He's the source of everything. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Christ. You want to see the glory of God? Look to the face of Jesus Christ. Look to what the scriptures tell you about Jesus Christ. In other words, the way to see God, you want to see what God looks like, is to look at Jesus. There is no other way to see him. There's no other way to understand him. There's no way to, to comprehend him apart from Christ. We can't see the Father. We can't see the Holy Spirit. But Jesus came to earth in bodily form so that we might see God. In fact, it was the Apostle John who wrote these words. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him.
Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. So you want something to be thankful for this week? Ponder the reality that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Your hope in him is never misplaced. It's never misplaced. All of your hope for eternal life, for sanctification in this life, for the ability to handle suffering in this life, all of it is grounded in the deity of Jesus. So you want them, something to be thankful for? Think of that this week. But there's more. Not only is Jesus the creator of all things, the heir of all things, the radiance of his glory, he is also the exact representation of God's nature. And I wish we had time for that, but it's more of the same. But number four, he is the sustainer of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. Look at verse three in Hebrews 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or your version might say, by his powerful word. He looks at the universe and he says, that's perfect. Everything, just keep doing what you're doing. And it obeys. Everything obeys. It is his powerful word. How did light come into existence? God said, God said, God spoke. And what did he say? Let there be light. And bam, there was light. I should say bang. In that sense, I agree with the big bang theory. There was light. Why? Because he spoke. And again and again, he just says, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. And it was. The word uphold is particularly interesting in the Greek because it doesn't simply, simply indicate that Christ supports, but that he actually carries all things. The difference is that one meaning is static and the other is dynamic. He is actively involved. This single phrase delivers, I believe, the death blow to the error of deism, which I would suppose in our country today, among those who claim to be Christian, are largely deists at heart. In the late 16 and 1700s, deism was a theology of choice among the intellectual elite These were the days of the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason, which brought about, in part, the discovery of natural laws such as gravity. They were thought to govern the universe. These natural laws were thought to be the governing power in the universe. And so in an attempt to interpret the Bible in a way that was consistent with these new discoveries, and isn't that the the way that the Word of God gets thrown under the bus? make new scientific discoveries, and we have a premise that says all truth is God's truth. We brand it truth, and now we got to make the Bible fit into it. Be careful of what you do with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Enough said. And so in an attempt to interpret the Bible in a way that was consistent with their new discoveries, philosophers like Voltaire came up with the idea of the universe 
that, sh- that we should think of it like a, a magnificent clock that was created by God and wound up and left to run its own course all by itself. And this is not at all consistent with what God has revealed about himself in the universe. God's word never pictures a cosmic watchmaker who is detached from his universe as one who winds it up and leaves it to run its course independently and under the influence of man in some way. Rather, it shows God to be the one who desires intimate interaction with his creation, who has designed all of that so that things would be personally carried forward into their appointed end. And the author of Hebrews says that's what Jesus does. He's carrying it, all of it. He's actively involved in all of it. He's not abandoned us. He is not watching from a distant. Bet Midler notwithstanding. He is intimately involved in every aspect of his living creation. Voltaire was wrong about God. Thomas Paine was wrong about God. Thomas Jefferson was wrong about God. Ben Franklin was wrong about God. And even he had to backpedal in the Constitutional Convention when they really got into a tight spot, a really tough spot. Benjamin Franklin was the one who gets credit for calling them all to prayer. He abandons his deism for a moment and begins talking to a God that he hopes desperately really is actively involved. You see, deism was not only a hopeless philosophy that left man to fend for himself in every crisis, it was also a godless philosophy that exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God in favor of the supremacy of man and his thinking and his science. It was nothing more than a socially respectable form of idolatry. But the God of the Bible is one who sovereignly and securely sustains all that he has created. The point is, beloved, that the precise balance required to sustain life on this planet is so delicate that the slightest inconsistency could trip it into a lifeless destruction a barren wasteland like Mars, like the moon. How does it all stay in perfect balance? The Lord Jesus, the creator and heir of all creation, carries it and sustains it perfectly with a word. He does it by the word of his power. In other words, he does it effortlessly. That's what, that's what the authors here are saying. Here and in other places, in Colossians, he does this effortlessly because he is God. And all all that is required is his powerful word. God has spoken, and he has spoken through his Son. In Colossians 1, Paul writes these words of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That goes back to who the heir is. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and in earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, now he's talking about spiritual powers, angels and demons. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
A little bit of science here. When you get down to the atomic level and you got all these particles and it seems like what they know about science, they should all be flying apart and they don't fly apart. What keeps them together? Nobody knows, but they came up with a really fancy term to describe that. You know what they call it? The strong force. And we know who that strong force is. He upholds or holds together everything by the word of his power. And if the word of God is true, and it is, there will be one day when the Lord Jesus will just let go and the whole thing's just gonna fly apart. Until that day, listen, until that day, you are absolutely secure. You are absolutely secure. If every detail of the cosmos is sustained by the word of Christ, then you can be sure that your life will be tenderly upheld and carried along until he graciously calls you home. Now, that's something to be thankful for. And just as another practical concern, listen, I don't know if the planet's getting any warmer. Maybe. I don't know if the climate's changing. Maybe. But I do know the promises of God. He will uphold all of it until his plan for history is over. And and that's even what he told Noah. Until the end, summer and winter and springtime and harvest will have no end. But then the end will come. And you will be rescued. You will be taken to the place that Jesus himself has prepared for you. And he will do as he pleases with everything else. He he can create a new heavens and a new earth, and he says he will. And then he'll put us on it, and he'll give it to us. He really is majestic, and it is too wonderful for us. And there's one more thing that's too wonderful for us, and that's this last thing that he mentions. He is the purifier of every believing heart. Notice what he says. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation or imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. At the end of verse 3, we simply read, when he made purification for sin, he sat down. Christ Jesus is not only excellent because of his awesome power, his awesome creativity, that he is the awesome heir of all things, he is excellent because of his perfect sacrifice. Here the author points us to the heart of the gospel. You see, beloved, the ultimate problem we face is not a persecution problem. That was the big problem for these saints, and it was certainly the big problem for the pilgrims, the Puritans who became pilgrims. It's not a poverty problem, it's not an equality problem, it's not even a disease problem. Our ultimate problem, really, when it comes down to it, is a purity problem. Our hearts are not pure. By nature, we are sinful. There is a righteousness that we desperately need, don't have, and can't earn. All of us are sinners, So when the infinitely pure eyes of holy God look out over all mankind, all he sees is impurity, and yet he himself is the opposite of that. He is holy, 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 and we are full of impurity. 
And that presents the greatest problem mankind has ever faced. How can an unholy people ever hope to live in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God? Well, because of his unfathomable grace, God provided the remedy for the problem. And here it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his only begotten, the heir of all things. He gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Life. You want something to be thankful for this week? Run to Christ and confess that the only thing that you have to offer him is your sin, but that you believe that God sent him on your behalf to make you truly pure and holy in God's sight. He will cleanse you. He will purify you. You need but to ask. He will take away your guilt. He will take away your shame. He will make you a new person. If there is ever anything to be thankful for, beloved, it is your salvation if you have it. And if you don't, then the Lord Jesus himself invites you. Come, come, all of you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. What kind of rest is that? It's eternal rest. Take my yoke upon you. There's work to do. For I am meek and lowly at heart, and you will have rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Come to him. He invites you. He invites you. That'll be something that you'll be thankful for for eternity. You know why the, you know where the pilgrims got the courage to give up everything that they had in England and put their lives at risk? I would submit that it was because they believed that having the freedom to worship Jesus Christ in a way that he is worthy of is worth every trial, every hardship, and every risk. And when they faced not theoretical trial, but real trial. Not the threat of death, but death itself. And they came through it as through a refiner's fire. And when they looked back on all of the losses, they could only say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And thank you, God for the inexpressible hope and joy that we have in Jesus Christ. That's why they gave thanks. They gave thanks for three days. And no doubt there was a lot of evangelism going on with those Indians. And you know what? Many Indians in the 1700s, there was a great awakening among the Indians. Not directly from the Puritans, but from those who followed Hebrews 12, 28 is the text I referred to you or, or mentioned to you earlier, where the author of Hebrews himself says, therefore, let us be grateful. Let us be thankful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship 
with reverence and awe. Awe. Where is your awe? Some things in your life really are awesome. And most things that you say are awesome or not. But God, Christ, his gospel, his spirit, and his word are awesome. And through it, we have every reason to give thanks to the Lord this week, no matter what. No matter what. And so I submit to you that meditation on the excellencies of Christ is a sure way to revive thankfulness in your heart no matter what you face this week. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we strive to be a a word-centered church, but we strive for it because we know the word leads us to you. Ultimately, we want to be a Christ-centered church. And so thank thank you, Father, for the many places in your word that directly and intentionally lead us there. And we praise you, Father, for the reminder of who our Savior is. Pray, Father, that you would be glorified in us this week as we think of him, as we meditate on him in the morning and perhaps in the evening. And when we meet together with our families, may it be happy, rejoicing, not merely in the material things that give us pleasure, but in the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. These things we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen.